Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Dr. Jess Armine coming to you from the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine here in southeastern Pennsylvania. Tonight, we are going to read your genetic profile without losing your mind, part the second. And anyone who's joining us now, <clears throat> excuse me, if uh, you have not gotten the PDF for tonight's show, if you would go to my website, drjessarmine.com, D-R-J-E-S-S-A-R-M-I-N-E.com, click radio show. And at the very top, you'll see the PDF. You can download it, and we'll give you a couple minutes to do so. I would um, like to thank everyone for this year being so attentive, uh, giving us such great feedback. Uh, we are trying to globalize uh, this concept of bioindividualized medicine because it includes not only the genetics but all aspects of integrative uh, medicine to include uh, the neurology, endocrinology, and immunology, um, cell wall stability, and at, <laughs> at least, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, acquired um, mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, we feel that uh, this combination of thought pattern uh, has helped us help people with health issues have been to see multiple doctors and still don't have answers. So what differentiates us from regular integrative doctors is that we can interpret the genetic profiles, okay, interpret all the other information, look at you as an individual, and build an individualized protocol that has a reasonable chance of getting you better. So many of my patients, and I know Sean can attest to this also, okay, finally tell us that they see a light at the end of the tunnel. So hopefully uh, you've gotten the PDF by this time. So I will go through the, the basic stuff. Um, I just kind of compressed from the last time we were together. Okay, remember that this purpose of this presentation is give you a general idea of the polymorphisms and how you may determine they are, they are expressing in you. The presence of polymorphisms does not indicate that there's a problem in the pathway. The absence of a polymorphism does not mean that the pathway is working normally. SNPs may or may not be expressing in you, and that's why it's very difficult to put it all together yourself. This is an informational lecture. The information may or may not pertain to your condition. Unfortunately, uh, there will be a Q, uh, I can't give specific recommendations, okay, but uh, there will be a Q&A session. I'll do my best. Remember that the SNPs have numerous interpretations. Okay, this informational lecture is from my own personal research, knowledge, and experience. Um, don't get upset if somebody looks at you and has a different interpretation. And the permissions. Again, we're going to be looking at a study of one of my patients utilizing the raw data from 23andMe.com and the app at mthfrsupport.com, Sterling's app. Uh, the patient's given me his kind permission to share his findings, but all his identification, uh, identifying information has been deleted. Research for this episode was done utilizing Snippedia, Gene Cards, and mthfr.net, Dr. Benjamin Lynch's uh, website. Also, uh, here's a book that I suggest that you get. It's called MTHFR Basics by Dr. Lynch. It's an e-book. It's on Amazon. It's for your Kindle, and it costs a whopping 99 cents. 
And if you want to understand MTHFR, I think it's about 20 or 30 pages long, and you'll understand it, I promise. <clears throat> We're looking at genes and SNPs. What are we looking at? Let's remember that a gene encodes an enzyme. Enzymes run the metabolic processes in the body. A polymorphism may indicate that the enzyme encoded by the gene in question may not be working at its usual efficiency. So a normal or negative-negative green means, usually means that the enzyme is working at its usual efficiency. Heterozygous polymorphism, which is the yellow or positive-negative, may indicate that the patient, that the patient, good jest, <laughs> may indicate that the enzyme is working at 60% efficiency, whereas homozygous, the plus-plus, or what's usually red, indicates that the enzyme is working at 10 to 20% efficiency. This is worth going over again real fast. Okay, think of it this way. Think of the biochemical pathways because that's what we're talking about, not individual genes of biochemical pathways as highways that are able to process a certain level of traffic in order to produce whatever result that they're supposed to produce. If they're supposed to create the glutathione, metabolize excitatory neurotransmitters, create neurotransmitters, detoxify toxins, etc. The normal expression, the green, is like an eight-lane highway, whereas heterozygous, the yellow, would be like a four-lane highway, and homozygous, red, would be like a two-lane highway. So if all the traffic is light, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're trying to push 12 or 20 lanes of traffic into an eight-lane highway, well, things will slow down, but they'll get through. But how about that same amount of traffic in a two-lane highway? Well, that may slow it down significantly or may actually stop the pathway. The traffic I'm talking about comes from chronic infections, chronic viruses, food allergy, leaky gut syndrome, immune upregulation, autoimmune diseases, fungal diseases, parasites, and really a combination thereof. So when you're looking at the polymorphisms, it doesn't matter whose application you use, whether it's Sterling's, Livewellow's, uh, Genetic Genie, Dr. Yasko's. The principle is as follows. Try not to look at one individual polymorphism and drive yourself nuts. Okay, look at them in, as part of a pathway. Look at them in groups. The best view of the SNPs is at the 30,000-foot point of view. So we're going to look at the these SNFs in groups like we did last time. Page 7 has, again, uh, the metabolic, the methylation pathway, according to uh, uh, the Neurological Research Institute, which is Dr. Yasko's. And you'll notice, because we're going to be going through MTHFR today, okay, that we start, if you look at the middle circle, with tetrahydrofolate, which is your dietary folate which passes through an enzyme called methylene tetrahydrofolate synthase. I wonder what that synthesizes. Okay, and it creates 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate. And I told you when I say something really, really fast, ignore it. Okay, because it's not that important. Well, it's important, but you don't have to remember it. Then it passes by methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase to become 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. What I didn't talk about last time is the circle on the left, where MTHFR has contribution to the production of neurotransmitters, and bio, I can never pronounce this word, bioteridin, bioteridin, whatever, BH4. 
and uh, the creation of excitatory neurotransmitters from tyrosine and inhibitory neurotransmitters from tryptophan. Uh, we go around the circle again to where we get to MTR and MTR, where we create, uh, well, one conjugates methionine, the other one, MTR, conjugates methyl B12. At some point, uh, the methyl group is lost, and SAMe goes along this remethylation process. Also, the BHMT has contribution into that. Uh, eventually, you get to AHCY, which creates homocysteine. Okay, which goes due south past cystathione beta synthase to create cystathione. Goes past another enzyme to create cysteine, and with alpha-ketoglutarate, it becomes glutathione. That's the quick explanation. The whole purpose of this pathway, the transsulfation pathway on the bottom, is to create glutathione. That's your body's master antioxidant and master antioxidant. Antioxidant and antitoxicant. Hopefully I didn't say something twice. Okay, MTHFR we're going to get into in a few seconds and what it contributes to. Your COMTs on the bottom you can see are the things that are the enzymes that break down the excitatory neurotransmitters where the MAO is breaking down the inhibitory serotonin. Let's go to the next page. Okay, this is something else that's really, really important and often ignored by other practitioners is a consideration of the cell wall, which is a phospholipid bilayer. Why did I put this on here? Because a big part of your healing is healing the cell walls, healing the cell wall integrity. How did it get pulled apart? Well, toxins, histamine, uh, various other nasty things can actually blow holes in this. And often, when I'm speaking with people and I'm listening and they say, well, I was treating a leaky gut, they weren't really treating it. Okay, they're following some kind of protocol, and you know how much I hate the word protocol. Excuse me a moment. I hate the word protocol because that's the lazy man's way of, lazy doctor's way of treating somebody. And no one's put a lot of attention into reestablishing the cell wall integrity. And this is necessary for all biological processes. When I learned uh, physiology in school, we, in medical school, we started with cell, cell physiology. That's, you know, what happens to a cell happens to the whole body. So if you can't get the cell wall together, okay, and stop it from leaking and letting things in and out that shouldn't be there, no one's going to get better. Okay? So keep that in the back of your brain as we go along. So here we are in difficulty in storing the phospholipid choline necessary for cell wall repair. It's actually called phosphatidylcholine, but no one can spell it or pronounce it. So um, I hope very, I just hear somebody said they don't hear anything. Um, can I get some feedback? Are people actually able to hear me? Okay, because um, I can't hear myself here. So... Um, if you are unable to hear me, uh, somebody type it in here so I can see what the problem is. Okay, and if it's only one person, have them log in and log out. Okay, see what happens. Okay, so phospholipid happens to be a phospholipid, and it's the most prevalent phospholipid in mammalian species. And that phospholipid is what is the main product or the main 
thing that helps heal the cell walls. Okay, you have phosphatidylethanolamine, phosphatidylinositol, which is present in lecithin. Okay, they all convert to phosphatidylcholine so that the cell walls can be repaired. Okay, it's, if you have difficulty in holding on to this particular phospholipid, you may need more of it. Now we get to MTHFR. Hmm. MTHFR, methylene, tydrohol, ty, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. You'll notice that there are a lot of MTHFRs okay, on this particular study. There are actually 50, 5-0. Okay, some of them are more important than others. Essentially, it, MTHFR reduces the capacity to produce, if you have a polymorphism, to produce methylfolate. The consequences can be reduced levels of BH4, which is important for neurotransmitters, and SAMe. The downstream effects are numerous. Honestly, the variant of the MTHFR kind of doesn't matter. Okay, the C677T and the A1298C is the ones we're most familiar with, the ones you hear about the most. Uh, maybe they have a little stronger contribution, but the bottom line is the more MTHFRs you have as polymorphisms, the greater probability that you're going to have problems in the pathway. Now, MTHFR has got innumerable related problems, which is why it's like at the forefront. So uh, from a something called MindMaster, for a Stephen Smith MD, okay, created a chart of all the things that can happen with uh, MTHFR uh, problems. And here are some of the things. Elevated homocysteine, cardiovascular disease, stroke, deep vein thrombosis, peripheral neuropathy, stillbirths, preeclampsia, depression, anxiety, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, dementia, schizophrenia, Parkinson's, BH4 problems, migraines, uh, combinations, system, uh, symptoms of both deficits. Uh, it goes on and on and on and on. Yes, the methylation uh, pathway is very, is very important. Okay, how and when to treat it is not as easy as it looks. Okay, the presence or absence of SNPs have to be clinically correlated. And it's incumbent on the healthcare practitioner that you work with to figure out what the best way to treat uh, the MTHFR uh, polymorphisms is. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, if you get a test from Quest and it just says you have MTHFR C677T or A1298C, and then your doctor says, okay, here, take this, okay, I would slip out the back, Jack, okay, because MTHFR does not exist by itself. It doesn't do, you know, it's just an indicator, okay, and the healthcare provider who's just going to hand you some Deplin or whatever it happens to be is not considering the other polymorphisms, which is why those particular medications or those particular substances only work, quote-unquote work, maybe 40, 50% of the time. Okay, if you want to know more about MTHFR itself and really get into it, uh, get Dr. Ben's uh, ebook off uh, uh, Amazon. Okay, it's about 20 pages long and it's a real education. It's very simple. I'll give you a very good idea of what's going on. Okay, 
On the next page, you see MTHFS. That's that methylene tetrahydrofolate synthase. I'll be honest with you, I've read hundreds of these, and I have never seen one that doesn't have a polymorphism, so I'm not exactly sure how significant uh, that polymorphism is. You have the MTR. There's only one of them. Okay, which uh, speaks to the conversion to methionine. And then you have your MTRRs, which talk about the creation uh, of methyl B12. Okay, the, when I'm looking at this, if I see a lot of polymorphisms in the MTRR, in my mind I'm saying, boy, this person probably is not creating much methyl B12, and I may have to supplement them with that. Nitrous oxide synthase, NOS tells me when I see a lot of polymorphisms that this person may have trouble breaking down nitrous oxide and, and they're free radicals and may have a possible association with mitochondrial dysfunction. Also, I found an article in Biogerontology that said that the gene variation of NOS1 and NOS2 was associated with longevity. Uh, it was also associated with uh, a lower cognitive performance, lowered physical performance, and in my estimation, uh, this all has to do with their inability or the indication that polymorphisms here do not allow you to conjugate or break down or get rid of your free radicals, also known as oxidating compounds. <clears throat> it's real important that you not only just look at the NOSs, but you look at what may be stressing that pathway, okay? PEMT has to do with phosphatidylethanolamine, and polymorphisms here uh, may tell you that there's difficulty in conjugating this particular phospholipid to phosphatidylcholine, which is necessary for cell wall repair. Okay, the SHMT I always understood to be the, um, the leaky gut gene. The SLC is associated with folate receptors, and re it's a carrier, it's a carrier gene, and reduced folate carriers. The um, TCN and may reduce the transport of cobalamin and reduce B12 levels. Going to page 12, I think I'm going too fast. Oh, yes. Anyway, going to page 12, the VDR receptor. Now, the VDR receptor, as you can see as it's written, is a protein coding gene, okay, and uh, it has to do with how you handle your vitamin D. So the diseases associated with the VDR receptor include osteoporosis and vitamin D-dependent rickets. Funny thing. Not funny haha, but funny strange. <clears throat> the, um, when the VDR is normal, we seem to have trouble methylating. Uh, we seem to over-methylate quickly. When you have a polymorphism here, for some reason I still don't understand, okay, uh, you have less problems with over-methylation. little trick of the trade for you. For the celiac and gluten intolerance, again, these are indicators, okay? The HLA DQA1 is more specific for gluten intolerance, but if there were two reds there and a person was ill and maybe had leaky gut, I'd probably put them all, pull them off gluten without any other studies, okay? It would be a pretty big indicator that 
that person would be gluten intolerant, okay? Thyroid studies, okay, the FOXY1 genes, these are just possible thyroid issues, and if you see a lot of polymorphisms here, you would at least be chatting with your physician or chatting with your healthcare provider about checking for hypothyroidism. Uh, if you had hyperthyroidism, you'd know about it. Your heart would be racing. You'd be running around like ricochet rabbit. But subclinical hypothyroidism, low thyroid, is rampant in this country. Absolutely rampant. Why? Because my medical colleagues only believe what they see on a lab test. Okay, that is the way they've been trained. You can have low thyroid and the lab tests be quote-unquote normal, and they won't treat it. But here's a little trick of the trade. You get your pens out? Okay, I'll give you a second to get your pens out so you can write. Okay, that was your second. All right, if you want to know if you have subclinical hypothyroidism, here's what you do. Number one, if you have the symptoms which are varied, being cold all the time, losing your hair, having trouble losing weight, um, fibromyalgia, uh, chronic pain syndromes, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on, okay? And you have a suspicion that your thyroid's low, okay? Maybe because a family member did, maybe because you listened to Dr. Jess and he said, maybe I should do this, and this way I can smack my doctor, you know, upside the head and say, treat this, okay? Here's what you do. In the old days, before we had tests, we would take temperatures, okay? And what I'd like you to do, like you think about, I like you to do, like to think about, okay, is get a, I like the old stick thermometers. They still have them, they're non-mercury right now, but the old stick thermometers, because for some reason I believe that the digital thermometers are not very good at the low ends. They're pretty great at the high ends, but not at the low ends. And what you do is you shake it down, put it next to your bed, and before you get out of bed in the morning, you put it underneath your tongue for 10 minutes, and you record the result. Now, if you're a man, okay, five to seven days is adequate. If you're a lady who has her menstrual, who's still cycling menstrually, you have to do it for at least two weeks because of the normal up and down of the temperature, okay, that occurs um, with the ovulation cycle. And here's what you look for. If you average 97.5 or below on average, I don't care what those tests say. You're, you're hypothyroid. If <clears throat> you are around 98 or above, 97.9, 98.981, and you're still having these feelings, well, it could be more of an adrenal problem. Okay, and in between there is what I like to call there be dragons. Okay, because uh, we have to figure it out. But if it's 97.5 or below on average, guess what? That's subclinical hypothyroidism. Uh, in the uh, Wilson's Temperature Syndrome uh, website, one of the ways they look for a T3 problem is for you to take your temperature three hours after you get up, three hours after that, and three hours after that. You do that for about two weeks. And again, you average each day and then average it out. The findings are still the same if you're... 97.5 or below, you definitely got hypothyroidism. They, they um, work mostly with T3, okay? Uh, the only thing I can tell you is that if you're having these symptoms and your doctor has kind of poo-pooed any thyroid issues, 
then this is one good data that you can take to your physician and say, look, I'm cold. This is what's going on. I've checked it three different ways. What are you going to do about it? If he doesn't want to do anything, guess what? Change physicians. Eye health. really has to do very little with eye health. It has to do with the conversion of beta-carotene uh, to vitamin A. If you have a lot of polymorphisms here and you have um, signs of vitamin A deficiency, well, the body's not creating vitamin A from beta-carotene. This is also the kind of person that um, when they drink a lot of carrot juice, looks like a carrot. You know, their hands get kind of orangey, their face gets kind of orangey, and uh, they continue to drink carrot juice. I don't know why. Anyway, um, in this particular case, mycelized vitamin A is a good thing to use uh, because it's already mycelized and ready to be absorbed. Mycelization is what the body does when it puts fats past the gallbladder. The gallbladder puts out bile, bile, uh, turns the fats into these very small droplets called myceles, and that's how you can absorb fats in a water-based system. In case you're wondering, I figured that would be good for your garbage pill of knowledge. We're going to talk a lot, a lot right now about the mitochondria. And I started with this, um, with this illustration on page 13 because one of the things you need to heal is a good energy creation or a functional energy creation mechanism. We've talked about detoxification pathways, okay? If they're not working, obviously, you won't heal. We talked about methylation pathways, okay? If they're not working, you obviously won't heal and have um, multiple difficulties. The transsulfation pathway, that CBS pathway, if that's not working well, you're not going to create uh, your glutathione, which is your master antioxidant or ma and master antitoxicant, and you may create a bunch of ammonia, that may cause brain fog or inflammation and so forth. Okay, but the last thing that everybody goes booga booga about because they don't understand it that well is the mitochondria. Now, for those who remember their basic biology, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Okay, now I'm about to tell you how it works. Okay, if you've got something to drink, you might want to take a sip now because... <clears throat> it's a pretty good explanation. We all know that glucose creates energy. But how? Glucose, blood sugar, creates ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is your actual energy. One mole of glucose gives you 38 ATPs. A mole is not a furry animal. A mole is a measurement. Okay, I hope you're laughing. Okay, because that one always, always gets a giggle. Okay, mole is 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd molecules, otherwise known as Avogadro's number. Okay, everybody can be impressed that I remembered that. Okay, so one mole of glucose has to go through something called glycolysis first. Glycolysis is considered a mechanical process because it doesn't really require an awful lot to get it going. That will produce two ATPs and lactic acid and pyruvic acid or lactate and pyruvate. If there is oxygen, which is why everybody's got to be on, the, everybody's being told you have to be alkaline, okay, the products of glycolysis will enter into the Krebs cycle via acetyl-coenzyme A. Just as an aside, why do you have to be alkaline? Well, 
in our bodies, our bodies are slightly alkaline. What's normal, what our normal pH is a 7.4. 7 is neutral. When you go lower, you're more acidic, like 6, you know, 5, 4. Okay, but when you go higher, you're more alkaline. We're on slightly on the alkaline side. And we jealously guard that pH because we're, our bodies work in a very narrow range. So if you have 7.4, you go to 7.5, 7.6, death. Okay, 7.4, 7.3, 7.2, 7.1, death. Okay? As you get more acidic, you have more hydrogen ions, more H's. As you get towards the alkaline side, you get a lot more hydroxy ions, OH's. And that's where the oxygen comes in. So that's why people are told to be healthy. You need to be more on the alkaline side. And, you know, the and green leafy vegetables and, and buffering compounds and so forth. If there's no oxygen, the process will continue on the anaerobic side or the glycolysis will continue. And think about it, to get your whole to get your thirty other thirty six ATPs, you're gonna you have to use up about nineteen times more glucose. Okay, and think you'll get your thirty eight ATPs, but you're producing a heck of a lot of lactic acid. So it's kind of better to go through the Krebs cycle. Okay, and you'll see that the products go into the Krebs cycle. The Krebs cycle is this honking large amount of biochemical processes, and I'm not going to go through it. Okay, if you want to look it up, be my guest. Okay, but the bottom line is that it ends up in pro these two products called NADH and FADH2. Those are electron donors. Okay, and what do electron donors do? They donate, I know. <laughs> okay, if you go to the next page, to actually create your energy, okay, you have to put those products through this thing called the electron transport chain. Now, look at the structure of the mitochondria. It's got two membranes. It's got an outer membrane and an inner membrane. Okay, it's the only cell in our bodies that, got, that has two membranes and it has intermembrane space. <clears throat> so here's what happens. The NADH, NADH and FADH2 are taken by coenzyme Q10. You've heard about that guy. Okay, who acts now like a maitre d'. He takes them over here to this complex one. You see the Roman numeral one. Okay, the NADH, the H is separated. The proton from the H is put into the intermembrane space, and the electron is carried along the little pathway there. Okay, then in complex two, the FADH2, the two H's are separated. The protons are put up into the intermembrane space, and we have more electrons going to complex three and four, where there's cytochrome B oxidase and so forth, and produce what I like to call magic, okay, because it's a little complicated. The results of that go to this last complex where there's ATP synthase. Gee, I wonder what that synthesizes, huh? Okay, and if everything's working well, you get your other 36 ATPs. In order for this to work, there has to be a clear pathway. You have to have your coenzymes and so forth. And these membranes have to be intact because you see where the positives and negatives are? That electrochemical gradient is necessary for the production of energy. And if you don't produce your energy, here's another reason why you won't heal. An interesting aside is that the mitochondria is not native to our bodies. It was a bacteria way back when that invaded our cells, okay, and it found out that, hey, 
our waste products was its food, and its waste products was our energy. Interesting argument for evolution, and, you know, we hadn't have a, had to have enough energy for evolution, but I'm not going to get into a philosophical discussion because my son Jesse will continue to correct me because he's so much smarter than I am. Anyway, so um, through the actions of Sean, especially uh, Sterling, um, Ben Lynch, and everybody, we found the polymorphisms associated with these complexes. And we were able to predict those people who it wasn't going to work. Now, unfortunately, the, the app uh, does this in alphabetical order, not in um, complex order. So I'm going to go down it, and the ATP5 whatever, okay, is complex 5, the ATP synthase. And you see that this individual has one or two polymorphisms. The COX, the various ones, are the cytochrome C oxidase, which is complex 3. The NDUFS, which, are you ready? NADH ubiquinone oxidoreductase, <laughs> I say that five times fast, okay, is complex 1. And you can see that this person has a fair amount of um, polymorphisms here. Complex 4, which the UQCRC, which is ubiquinol cytochrome, cytochrome C reductase complex is complex four. Okay, and we don't have uh, we don't have the polymorphism for complex two yet. In this particular person, the where I suspect the biggest problem is in complex one, and I see that in all the floxies also, where they had the major amount of polymorphisms in complex one. Dr. Ben Lynch uh, discovered uh, through some research that one of the ways that this complex can get blocked up is when glutathione gets used up, it becomes oxidized and can actually sit in the first complex there. And uh, the oxidized glutathione not only has to oxidative stress, but actually can block the entry of the electron donors. Interesting, huh? Interestingly, when we started using the IV NAD, and the niacin compounds and so forth, and I'm not going to get into that particular argument, uh, I thought that the NAD was just pushing the electrons through. But what uh, Dr. Lynch found out was that the NAD was recycling the oxidized glutathione, making it reduce glutathione, which is its, you know, its usable form, and it got out of the mitochondria, and that kind of cleared the pathway. And I noticed that when we used it, people were getting their energy back. In other words, the mitochondrial pathways were opening up. Gee, I hope I'm not committing sacrilege because sometimes when I talk, I create holy wars. Nevertheless, the pattern I've seen in a lot of people with chronic illnesses has been the majority of the polymorphisms in complex one and secondary in complex five and or complex three. Okay, and uh, actually treating this can be, a, can be a little tough, but, you know, it's important if you have these polymorphisms and you have correlating what I like to call acquired mitochondrial dysfunction, that it become, that you work on it because it's one of the major reasons people don't heal and it, it for all kinds of chronic diseases. It's my opinion that any chronic disease, any disease that has gone to the chronic stage has some form of acquired mitochondrial dysfunction or secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. 
We're looking at the other immune factors. Uh, things are less important until you get to the Mediterranean fever. I wanted to put a little note there that this is um, this type of familial Mediterranean fever is caused by the person's own inflammatory response. It's not an infectious disease, and you can see the populations that it affects. Uh, there's a whole mess of sulfonotransferases. Uh, I did a lot of looking around, okay, and basically what these do is catalyze, in other words, conjugate um, hormone, hormones, neurotransmitters, drugs, xenobiotic compounds, steroids, bile acids. They're kind of important in a lot of different things. And um, there is some indications that they have uh, contribution to cancer. Okay, and you can see the references there. Uh, Dr. Ben is the expert on this. Uh, as you can see, this person doesn't have too many. Okay, so hopefully I'm not confusing the whole world out there. Okay, I'm going to tie it together a little bit, okay, at this particular point before we open up for, um, for questions and answers. Uh, by now, uh, these past two shows, I hope I've conveyed the following to you. And I mean this from my heart. The presence or absence of SNPs in and of themselves do not indicate the presence of or absence of disease. The SNPs are probabilities and need to be correlated with your entire clinical condition. Please pay attention to that because it's true. Treating only the SNPs with various available products designed for same without correlation to your clinical condition is inadvisable at best. There are some uh, protocols out there, there's some people out there that will, you know, you'll take a, you know, set of polymorphisms and they will give you, take this for that, this, this for the COMT, this for blah, blah, blah. That is not the way to treat you, okay? That is not the way to treat a person. It may be the way to treat the SNPs, but it's not a way to treat the person. Accord the, to, the correlation I speak of should be done by a trained and experienced healthcare provider. I have always gone by the saying that a doctor who treats himself has got a fool for a patient, okay? And the times I've tried to treat myself, guess what? <laughs> I have paid for it, okay? And the reverse is also true. If you're trying to treat yourself and you've got a complex condition, um, believe me, I understand, but it's, this, is, this is a tough correlation to do because you're not just putting genetics, you're putting you know, your entire physiology, your neuroendoimmunology, your mitochondrial function. These things that I glossed over, and believe me, it was glossing, okay, are not easy things to treat. You have, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of consideration to be done, and it should be done on an individual basis. There should be no protocols. Okay, there should be individualized treatment plans that are creative for you. Sometimes you have some standard protocols used as a jumping off point, but you know, the treatment must be individualized to you, in my opinion. So looking at the SNPs individually is usually bad. Looking at them as parts of pathways and considering the entire pathway is best. Discovering what is stressing or crashing the pathway, remember the highway example, is the true way of healing true way of healing an individual, and often when you do this, the pathways fix themselves. I know I'm committing sacrilege here, okay? If you fix the person, 
often the pathways will fix themselves because what has happened to the pathways but they have been stressed by too much traffic so what's the best way to treat somebody heal their bodies as best you can then look at the polymorphisms and those pathways as indicators of what may not be working with the person what may need a little bit of help but you don't primarily treat the polymorphisms first okay and um I know I'm probably going to have the men in black at my door before I leave tonight, so I'm going to have to go out the back way. But that happens to be the truth. And people, in choosing a healthcare practitioner, it's critically important that you pick somebody who thinks like a detective. Everybody like me as Sherlock Holmes? Okay, a true holistic practitioner offers you the best of traditional and alternative medicine. That's what integrative medicine is all about. Integrative medicine is not, you know, let's me swing a chicken over your head or use crystals or be, or be beholden to one single protocol. A integrative practitioner, a true integrative practitioner, will offer you and consider everything that can heal you. So the practitioner is not beholden to a single protocol or a single way of thinking. Many practitioners you go to see, they'll do X protocol. Yeah, okay. And um, that protocol may be good for Lyme, like the Cowden's protocol or something like that. Okay, in my opinion, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. A detective, your detective will build a treatment plan based on your individual genetics and physiology, and most of all, will listen to you. It has been said by very old doctors, the doctors who taught me, that if you listen to your patient, they will tell you what's wrong. Hence, we have created bio-individualized medicine. We've been talking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks now. Bio-individualized medicine is getting back to the old way of thinking, looking at the person as an individual. Uh, we're trying to get doctors and healthcare providers to not look just at the lab work, but look at the individual and consider a six-point paradigm that covers mostly everything. And guess what? The people who are learning this are the people who are healing. So I'm going to tell you Alyssa's story. Okay, this beautiful young lady that you see here, okay, is Alyssa. And I have her mom's permission and the, and the Alyssa's permission to talk about this. And this is my favorite little girl in the whole wide world. Okay, a few years ago, Alyssa's mom called me up because she said those glasses are called Erling glasses. She felt that her uh, daughter may have needed Erling glasses because she's having some visual distortions. After I spoke with her for a little while, I said, you know, I think your daughter's got hallucinations. I want you to ask her these questions. And the next day she called up. I was very, very upset because uh, little Alyssa, who was eight at the time, uh, had not only visual and auditory hallucinations, but olfactory um, smelling things that weren't there. Well, by the way, olfactory hallucinations, in case you're wondering, okay, are, is a brain tumor unless proven otherwise. So I asked mom to... Um, get you know the regular workup done and told her what that involved and to contact me if everything was negative and that's exactly what happened okay <clears throat> Alyssa to make this very long story short um, had a very bad gut we treated her leaky gut syndrome and had four infections okay she had Lyme she had anaplasma uh, yeast and herpes 6 which is a neurological herpes and um, I worked with a um, 
another doctor on the uh, West Coast uh, who was an integrative physician, uh, only because I wanted to make sure that Alyssa got the best. And we spent about three months, three or four months, maybe five, getting her gut back in order. And then came the time when um, the other physician wanted to insert a catheter and start doing rotating antibiotics. Um, Being from Brooklyn, I said certain things about sleeping with fishes, and uh, the other doctor backed off. And I used something else, which I can't mention, okay? And uh, three to six, I think it was about six weeks of that. We redid all the tests, and all the infections were gone, and all the hallucinations were gone. All the negative symptoms were gone. <clears throat> Interestingly, I got her 23 and me back about that time, put it through the uh, Sterling's app, and this young lady has the worst-looking 23 and me I've ever seen in my life. Even Sterling sat up and took notice and said, boy, you better do this, 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 and this. I said, I already did. So guess what? Even though she has more reds than I've ever seen on a... Um, on a 23andMe, she's walking around just fine. Why? Because we took care of the infections. We took care of the traffic. And now she's doing just great. She has friends. She's not sick all the time. And she loves me and my cat because she loves my Calvin. That is Alyssa's story. When I did finally meet her, I got the best little girl hug in the world. So I would like to tell you, I'm going to skip a page here, Uh, before I take questions, is that uh, in the next few months, we are, the Center for Bioindividualized Medicine is going to add an educational arm called the Institute for Bioindividualized Medicine. This institute is going to offer courses in bioindividualized medicine, leading to certification. Okay, the idea of certification is that you can be assured that the practitioner who's certified in bioindividualized medicine has a certain level of training and guess what? Can handle everything we've been talking about and not just methylation or not just something else. We're going to train healthcare providers to do what we do because we do it so well, I like to think. So I'd like to take your questions now. It's 846. There's been somebody from the 905 area code that's been holding on for 41 minutes. And um, let me see what they want. Let me see. Okay, hold on. Hello there. In the 905 area code, are you there? Ah, maybe you're not. No, I'm Hi. here. Oh, I'm glad to hear you. This is Dr. This is Dr. Armine. I'm well. What can I'm I What can I answer for you? Been spending a whole lot of time listening to you, and I would love to know when your next course is coming out. We're in the process of creating them presently, um, and. Um, that process is is uh, is vast because I'm uh, talking not only to Ben and, and Sterling because uh, I'd like them to handle the methylation and uh, we're in the process of creating modules for neurology, endocrinology, immunology, mitochondrial dysfunction. It's the overview that you heard today is kind of kind of the direction, but it's going to be of course deeper and. Uh, more informative, and um, at the end of this set of modules will be a final exam. And then, believe it or not, uh, the healthcare practitioners are going to go through an oral exam. Okay, so they're going to actually be in front of me and Sean and 
I'm going to make sure that anybody who goes on to this particular list and gets certified really understands and, and knows how to differentiate um, these complex problems. Because quite frankly, I am, I am tired, and I know you guys are tired, of uh, going from one physician to another to another, only to realize that they're only taking a piece of the pie and just dealing with that one little piece, and that's it. Okay, it's time to bring back the old family-type physician who always knew you and always knew everything that was going on. So you'll hear about it. Just keep an eye. Just keep an eye out on the website. You'll know I'll announce it. <laughs> That's <Loudly>. beautiful. But <laughs> how do we do an oral exam from Canada? Skype. Oh, I'm do it trying on Skype. to boost my EMF. Yeah, I know, but uh, you know, it would be worth doing it. You know, um, that's the only way I could do it. But uh, unless somebody wants to fly to Philadelphia, but that's um, even more EMF up there. <laughs> well, you know what? But you guys the, are doing uh, a great, great show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it's your absolutely support. wonderful show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. And uh, okay. you have a happy new year. Take care. You Bye-bye. Too. Bye-bye. People, uh, the call-in number is 646-595-2277. And uh, does anybody would like to uh, ask a question? There are a bunch of people in the chat room. Uh, please call in. Uh, we have about 11 minutes left to the show. And I would love to uh, answer any individual questions that I could. Okay. Um, if you'd like to get a consult with either myself or Sean, okay, uh, right now uh, you could call us at um, the number that you see, 610-449-9716, or you can contact us by email at uh, bioindividualmed.com. Just fill out the contact form, and then we have our email uh, addresses there. And here comes another question. Hello, nice person from the 612 area code. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. What can I do for you, sir? I um, I'm, have some questions, or I'm just curious. I would like to dive a little bit more into um, the NOS genes and specifically nitric oxide breakdown or, or lack thereof. Um, and I guess one specific question I have is, is there a relationship between polymorphisms in those genes and sulfur sensitivity in patients? Um, could you ask the last part again? Yeah, so, you know, so a number of patients can get uh, very sensitive to sulfur foods, right? So garlic, onions, yeah. brassicas, um, things of that nature. And I'm just wondering, and so that's just a question in and of itself. You know, it's, there's a lot of different theories, and that's related to CBS or, or mitochondrial function or whatever. And I'm, I'm curious if, from your experience or if you know or from your research, if there's any relationship between that phenomenon, so sulfur sensitivity, and polymorphisms in the NOS genes. Directly, yes, it does. I just I, I thought I was hearing something else. Sure. Um, directly, I didn't. I don't see that um, as yeah. a uh, as a consistent correlation. But what I do see is that uh, people who have a clinically active, if you will, uh, CBS problem, okay, yeah. uh, that, adds, that adds to the amount of uh, oxidative stress that the body's getting, okay, yeah. and the person who has difficulty 
catalyzing uh, nitrous, nitric oxide, okay, yeah. um, they're going to have difficulty globally decreasing their um, free radicals or their oxidative stress. So when you, if you look at it again from the thirty thousand foot point of view, and you start yeah. seeing uh, that they have uh, NOS problems and then SOD problems. And then you look at the uh, mitochondria, you say to yourself, this poor person has difficulty getting rid of their oxidative stress. Then if we look yeah. at what might be creating the oxidative stress, certainly methylation problems, certainly CBS problems would contribute to that. Uh, there is uh, no direct you know, NOS-CBS correlation that I, I do see, but when you look at it as a, as a, as a system, uh, you can see where... Uh, that wouldn't make anything easier on that individual. That that individual, the way to deal with that would be to pick one thing. Usually we start with the CVS pathway if we know that it's uh, having difficulty yep. and start clearing that up and then looking at the methylation pathway and then supporting the mitochondrial pathway, okay, kind of simultaneously, yep. okay, yep. so that things can just start working, okay. And uh, there's little tricks of the trade to do that. Uh, and um, once you start decreasing the traffic going in and then improving the traffic's ability to move, so to speak, uh, yep. the person who hasn't been uh, getting better, who's been having multiple infections, all these things start turning around. Okay, it does take a little bit of time, though. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't happen yeah. immediately, but if at least you start with that plan in your head, okay, you can uh, work with that person individually. Did I answer sure. your question? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, okay. it's difficult to get into the nitty-gritty details when, as you well, it's, say, it's best from the, the bird's-eye view. So, yeah. You really have to do from the bird's-eye view first, okay? Yeah. And then uh, then you look at the person, like I said, individually. And that's the whole, that's the whole thing. It, it, the whole idea of being a holistic practitioner is to look at everything. Okay, and then say, okay, what's best for this person? And, of course, ruling out anything really, really nasty that has to be immediately treated. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions on, on how to, if you suspect that someone, so if someone has the NOS um, polymorphisms and you suspect that they're not, uh, understanding that there's you know other things to think about and take a look at, but if you suspect that they're not breaking down nitric nitric Acid, uh, excuse me, nitric oxide. Nitric oxide. Sufficient, yes, yeah, sufficiently. Are there things to do in the acute moment, um, you know, besides, uh, you know, hydrotherapy and drinking water and deep breathing and all, you know, all the usual stuff to support um, well, your you body? Well, uh, one, one of the things you can do is stop using um, heavy doses of um, omega-3 fatty acids. They tend to create a lot of nitric oxide. And, um, yeah, it's, it, and, and I'd have to go back a and look up why that happens, but I'm, you know, yeah. I remember that it does in fact happen. Uh, and um, <clears throat> the real trick is to look at what would be creating, and look at it as yeah. free radicals. Look at it as oxidative stress. You can, yep. uh, you know, if the person's smoking, if they're getting secondhand smoke, all the things that you do to decrease oxidative stress is going to help along that particular line. Sure. There isn't like right, a substance you can use. You must welcome. Yeah, no, totally. Year. Okay, thank, take care. Thank you, sir. Bye, bye. Bye now. Good evening. This is Dr. Armine. How are you? Hello. I don't know who the person is. One, 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 one.
Okay? Anyway. So, would anybody else like to ask questions? We have a whole five minutes. And yes, the uh, courses that we're going to be teaching... Oh, there's somebody. There you go. A nice person from Hello? the 313 area code. Hi, this is Dr. Armine. Hi, I have a question with regard to... Um, I'm actually going back to almost the first presentation on the 23andMe. And I suspect that I have a mold issue. So when I look at the two um, sections under allergy and mold, I am hetero for one of the molds and homo for the other ones. Um, I'm wondering, is that Say like kind of... Say it again, please. I am it's hetero your... for one of the SNPs on the mold and yeah. under allergy and mold, and then homos, I guess, under the other one. So okay. I, I'm suspecting a mold issue. Is that a definitive um, means of is it definitive? Kind of no. Is it is it a okay. good is it a good uh, indicator? Is it a good red flag? Yes. If you're having uh, if you're having um, whatever kind of difficulties that you may be attributing to mold, when you look at the uh, the allergy and mold section, and you have a yellow and a red homozygous and heterozygous, <clears throat> and uh, you haven't considered mold, it's one of those things that hasn't been considered in your condition. It's something I'd, I'd pop up and think about. You know, and I'd say to myself, gee, you know, we haven't looked into mold. Let's let's check. And there's ways of checking for, um, you know, uh, y there's urine tests out there from real-time labs that you can uh, check for the uh, your reaction to the mold toxicity and so forth. Uh, and this would be especially good if you've had uh, a chronic condition that you've tried several thousand different things, okay, and nothing's working and nobody knows where to go. And uh, all of a sudden, you want to hit yourself in the head and say, oh, it, I didn't check for mold, okay? And mold can be a very nasty, nasty thing, okay? It's really ruined a lot of lives. <clears throat> but uh, is, it, is it definitive? Remember, the polymorphisms are not definitive. What that says is that you have difficulty conjugating or metabolizing or getting rid of the mold. Uh, and so if you combine that with um, mold exposure that may be still in your body, like in the nares and so forth, or you may be in a, um, a situation uh, where you're exposed to mold on a regular basis, okay? And one way you can tell that is uh, if you, like, like, go to work and get sick and then come home on the weekends and you get better, okay, then you've got a sick building, okay? If you go away on vacation, and you feel a lot better, and you come home, and you start getting sick again, uh, it's time to look for mold in the house. Okay, those are some of the minor indications or minor um, ways of thinking about it. Okay. Is it possible if I'm suspecting a mold exposure that may have been even quite a while ago for that to still be a problem? If you're, if you're, being, if you're still ill based on the mold, it'll show up in the, it'll show up in the urine test. Okay, it's something that you want to work with uh, a practitioner who understands this a little bit because uh, these tests are expensive. Uh, the test I just talked about is $700, okay, and there's no insurance coverage for it. Uh, so you want to make sure that you've ruled out, you know, taken a good history and ruled out everything uh, and then put things in order of importance, okay? But, you know, that would be on my radar, from what you just told me, would be definitely on my radar. May not be the first thing I went after if I have if there were other things, but it would definitely be on my radar. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're most welcome. Thanks. 
Guys, we only have 10 seconds left, so I can't get to these other two callers. If anybody would like to uh, message me, uh, please do. Happy New Year to everybody. We'll see you next year. Take care. Bye-bye.